but we'll begin by reading Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank You again for Your work in salvation. Lord, it's my particular prayer that You would magnify Yourself, Father, Son, and Spirit, that each person of the Trinity would be exalted. And even as You give us insight into Your work in redemption, that You would also inflame each one of our hearts to work with You to continue that work that you have brought about, even as we seek to be the church that you have called forth into existence. Lord, we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. I think some of the scariest words that any student could ever... This is going to be a collaborative assignment. And those aren't scary words because students don't like to talk with each other. We know they do like to talk with each other because every time a teacher leaves the room, it's, you know, explosion of chatter. They like to talk for the most part. But the reason that the the thought of having a collaborative assignment is scary is because students hate to do the work and then have other people not get credit. The, The word collaborative really comes from two words, uh, co meaning joint or together, and labor, work. So it's to work together on something. And uh, we know that on collaborative assignments, we have some students who are lazy and so they don't do the work. And you have others who do the work, and but they don't like giving credit to other people for the work that they've done. And collaboration has all the signs of being the wonderful experiment in harmony, but it usually ends up becoming a disaster. And in light of that, I, I find it remarkable that Paul's emphasis in Ephesians 1 is on the collaborative work of the Trinity in redemption. As bad as collaboration is amongst 
humans, it's, it's remarkable that God, in the greatest work that could ever be accomplished in all of history, God himself chose to make redemption a collaborative work. Neither one, uh, neither person in the Trinity was resistant to wanting to share the credit, so to speak. Neither person was lazy, but all worked together for the benefit of exalting and loving one another. And that's what gets emphasized here in uh, Ephesians 1. It, notice how the, the, the passage distinctly praises each person of the... At the same time, it seamlessly ties the individual work that they do together as a unit. So they work independently but completely together. And so it shows how the Father worked. It shows how the Son worked. It shows how the Spirit worked. Each did their part, but each part is completely connected to the work of the others. But it's also worth pointing out that it's in Ephesians chapter 4, two chapters later, that Paul applies the collaboration in redemption of the Trinity to the church. Just as the Trinity worked together to bring about salvation, now God calls all the members of Christ's body to work together to complete that work. And again, my thesis in this series, this is a three-part series, my thesis is that the relationships within the Trinity provide the standard or the example for all of our body of Christ that we need to take our cues from the Trinity. Because we haven't just been saved to be set free from the wrath of God, though that's true, but we have been saved to be brought into relationship with God, with every member of the Trinity. And we are supposed to exemplify in our lives, particularly in our lives with one another as the church, the same unity and love and collaboration that they experience. And so today we're going to particularly look at, again, their collaboration uh, in their work of redemption. We'll look first at uh, the Father and His work of election, the Son and His work of redemption, the Spirit and His work of sealing, and then finally the church also being brought in to that in Ephesians 4 and their being called to minister together. Let's look first at the Father and His work of election. Beginning in verse 3, through verse 6, it emphasizes the Father's work of election. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. The beloved is referring to the son. So what these verses highlight is the father's love in election. And his love is particularly seen in that he chose us despite us not having anything to offer Him. He didn't see any quality in us. It was a choice made simply out of His free grace 
and love without illustrating God's choosing us uh, with uh, a fairy tale. How the, the prince in many fairy tales will come across a, a, a peasant girl who is poor and brings her into his kingdom and raises her out of her distress and gives her life with him in a way that's beyond her imagination. But the problem I quickly discovered is that in fairy tales, usually the prince selects his bride, his princess, because of some quality that she has. She's either really beautiful or she's virtuous. There's something about her that attracts her to him. But that's not the case with us. We possess no quality that would ever prompt God to choose us. In fact, in Romans 3.10, it says, There is no one righteous, not even one. None pursues God. None seeks after Him. They've all turned aside. They're all worthless. No one does good. So unlike the princesses in fairy tales, there's nothing to attract us to God. There's no reason There's nothing in us, no virtue, no quality that would ever prompt him to want to choose us. He chose us simply because he wanted to express his love to us. And because of this, this is one of the greatest encouragements to Christians. Because if God chose us, regardless of our circumstances, if he chose us while we were yet sinners... He chose us and then died for us. How much more assurance do we have that he will continue to love us? If God chose to love us when we had nothing to offer him, how much more now that we've been sanctified, now that we've been cleansed, now that we've been called into relationship with him, how much more assurance do we have that nothing will ever separate us from the love of Christ? The fact that God chose us just according to the greatest assurance that Christians have. And notice the end of verse 4. In love. That's emphatic. In love, He predestined us for adoption. Again, God loves us simply because He's chosen to. So the Father demonstrates His love for us in saving us for salvation, or electing us for salvation. The Son's part of Our salvation was in redeeming us in love. Let's look at the Son's work of redemption. Verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. Verse 7 says, In Him, that is, in the Beloved One. That's referring to Jesus. Interesting that He's called the Beloved. Especially in light of what we saw last week. It's in Christ that we have redemption. That that word redemption means purchase, uh, in particular to purchase something out of the slave market is what it's referring to. Christ bought us out of the slave market of sin and the ransom price was the wrath of God, the eternal wrath of God. And He paid that price, it says, with His own blood. Since the price of every sin is death, the wages of sin is death, The only way that we could have our sins paid for is if God Himself became man and died in our place. And and that's what Jesus did. And what it accomplished was the forgiveness of our trespasses. 
He continues, having brought about our forgiveness, He also lavished on us all blessings of being united to Him. Making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ. Verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him. That was always the plan to bring about unity. Things in heaven, things on earth. In Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. And that mention of the inheritance is... um, Paul is using as kind of a prelude to introduce the work of the Spirit later on. So not only are we united to the Trinity in being united to Christ, not only are we redeemed, but in our redemption we also receive an inheritance. Because God the Father chose us to be adopted as sons. The Father chose us. And also, in Christ we receive the honors of the same blessings that He deserves. It was Jesus' inheritance, but He chose to share that inheritance with us. And to to enable Him, in order to share that inheritance, He had to die. Again, remarkable love. Speaking of inheritance, it's, it's interesting. One of the, I think, interesting phenomenon in... One of the most divisive things in families is over inheritances. Inheritances tend to bring about divisive conflicts going all the way back to Genesis with Jacob and Esau later on with Joseph and his brothers. These were all conflicts that really began with quarrels over inheritance. Countless wars throughout history have been fought with princes warring to decide who's going to take their father's throne. Even the, the, the existence of divorce lawyers, not divorce lawyers, sorry, <laughs> uh, lawyers, estate lawyers, um, gives testimony to the divisive nature of inheritances. We need lawyers to help divvy out and assign where somebody's who's perished their possessions should go. In fact, in many families, a will creates more uh, grief than actually the loss of life of the person who died. With Jesus, who died so that we might share in His inheritance. It's His, but He died so that He could share it with us. And, and this is what the Father appointed and, and the Son fulfilled his role perfectly. And then in verse 13, we're told that the Spirit's work was then to seal us so that we might have a guarantee that we're going to receive that inheritance. Look at verse 13. In Him, you also, when you heard of the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So it was Jesus who purchased our inheritance, but it's the Spirit who comes and seals us as a guarantee that we're going to inherit it. And that word seal, that means to mark something with a seal. And for clarity, when we talk about seals, we're not talking about the seal in the ocean that flaps and makes fun. We're talking about a seal like as in a letter, a seal that you put on a letter. In the ancient world, a, a seal was used to mark uh, something as belonging to a person, like a brand. Um, and these, these brands were put on letters, they were put on other possessions, especially if something was going to be shipped, um, to mark it as 
belonging to the owner. But seals also were used uh, to preserve the contents of something. So if something was sealed, then people would know it has not been gotten into. Like we put seals on medicine bottles. When, when there's a seal, we know it hasn't been tampered with. And the Holy Spirit both marks the believer as belonging to God. They're gods. They're sealed with his seal. And the Holy Spirit protects them until they're resurrected. Until they're completely done with sin. So the Holy Spirit brings about both purposes. He marks us as belonging to God and And in doing so, the the Holy Spirit proves that we're not fake. Because if we have the Holy Spirit, that shows that we really are believers. It proves that we belong to God because He manifests His presence in us. Well, how does He do this? Well, He does it by bearing fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. And we Christians bear the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control faithfulness versus the fruit of the flesh, dissensions, rivalry, strife, um, orgies, drunkenness, all the other things mentioned in Galatians 5. Paul draws this out as we saw in Romans 8, verse 9, when he says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead, the spirit is life because of righteousness. See, the the fact that Christians choose to deny their fleshly desires, they choose to say no to themselves and instead pursue love, they do what's best for another person regardless of the consequences of the self, that, that they live for God and not for themselves, proves that they're believers, that they have the Holy Spirit, that they're born again. And that's why Paul says in Galatians 3.17 that the, the Christians experience this tension, this war. There's this fight of the flesh against the Spirit because our flesh is still corrupted by sin and we're easily allured. That's why we have to confess our sins so frequently. But the Spirit wars against that. We feel this tension. See, believers feel the tension. We fight sin. But unbelievers, they just do what they want to do. They just follow the flesh. Now, they may be because they, they, they're afraid of men. They may be because they so many motives. But at the end of the day, they're going to do what they want to do. Believers, though, put their fleshly desires to death. And the fact that believers do this is the evidence that the Holy Spirit is in them. That's where the assurance comes from. So the evidence of the Holy Spirit in our lives is not that we perform miracles like the apostles do. It's not that we speak in tongues or that we get chills when we sing a praise chorus 15 times. The evidence that the Holy Spirit is in us is that we hate our sin and that we repent from it. We hate our sin, we repent from it. That's the evidence of the Holy Spirit. That's where Christians get their assurance from. And Paul demonstrates in these verses in Ephesians that each person in the Trinity, therefore, does their part. The Spirit guarantees our salvation, manifests Himself in us, 
as well as causes us to be born again at redemption through his death and incarnation. And the Father loves us in electing us, regardless of our sinful condition. And so, notice that it wasn't just Jesus who saves us. It, was, it wasn't just the Father who saves us. It was all three working together. The Father elected, the Son redeemed, and the Spirit regenerated. And, and if at any point in this plan of redemption that they set forth, if at any point any of the mem- members of the Trinity decided that the roles that they were called to was beneath them, the whole plan would fall apart. And we would end up in hell getting what we justly deserve. If God didn't want to offend anybody by appearing unjust, by choosing some and not choosing another, if He didn't want to offend and didn't choose to elect some to salvation, would have perished. If the Son would have said He didn't want to share His inheritance with people who don't deserve it. He didn't want to go to the cross for sinners. Then we would have all been damned. If the Spirit would have found it disgusting to indwell sinful human flesh. If he, if he didn't want to be near human flesh, let alone have to endure it with Christians who engage in fornication. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. While he indwells them. If he decided that is beneath me, that's disgusting. I am God, I'm holy. If any person of the Trinity would have said, I don't want to have any part in this, which they justly could have done, None of us are saved. All three had to act. And praise be to God that all three did. And I think it's really good that that the church gives honor to God the Son. But we also need to recall that it wasn't just the Son who saved us. The Father worked. The Spirit worked. All three worked together. And that's precisely why Paul follows each description of what each person did with the phrase to the praise of his glory. And just as all three persons of the Trinity work together to bring about our salvation, likewise, each Christian is called to work together to play their part in bringing about the salvation of others and helping one another grow in Christ's likeness. And this is the main point of Ephesians chapter 4. So if you would turn or just look, have your eyes carry over into Ephesians 4, if it's on the same page or the next page. This is the application, the so what, to the work of the Trinity explained in chapter 1. So because of chapter 1, chapter 4. Because of 1, we do chapter 4. So let's look at the church The Father elected, the Son redeemed, the Spirit sealed, the church is called, particularly called to ministry. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So he begins by describing the character of our calling. And then we'll see how he provides a paradigm or a, a pattern for what our 
ministry should look like, our calling to ministry. And then we'll look at the plan for ministry. But he begins with this character. He urges us to, to uh, walk in a manner worthy. And he describes what that looks like. I, I, I want you to uh, turn to Romans 8.29. We, we, obviously, we just looked at this uh, in the Scripture reading. But turn to Romans 8.29. I want you to see something. Paul's simple exhortation in this chapter is that Christians should walk in a manner worthy of their calling. But what is it that they've been called to? Well, we're told in Romans 8, 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called and those whom he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he glorified. And in fact, if you look even at verse 27, it mentions our calling. I think. No, it doesn't. I was right. 28. It's 28 and 29. So the point is that this is not an, just an individual pursuit to be conformed to the image of Christ. We've been called to Christ's likeness, but not just as individuals as we pursue this. We've also been called to pursue the Christ-likeness in other individuals for the sake of the whole body. That as each one of us pursues Christ-likeness and we pursue Christ-likeness and what's Christ-like. That's what we've been called to. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's the work of a Christian. That's our calling. That's what we've been called to do. And so if you've been saved, then you have been called to pursue Christ-likeness personally and, and to pursue the Christ-likeness in others. And Paul begins by describing what character this demands in each Christian. Verse 2, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So before getting into the different ways that members can minister to one another, Paul begins by emphasizing the need to have right character. And, and it's important that we realize just here that this shows us that ministry is not just about the work. It's not just about fulfilling roles. We tend to think of ministry as in terms of what we do and things that are part of the infrastructure, serving in a nursing, preaching or doing evangelism, all things that are necessary. But... It's not just about doing work or finishing a task. The goal has to be a mutual desire to be Christ-like and to help others. So there's a danger in just being task-oriented or just rule-oriented. Just tell me what I need to do. Let me do my job so that then I can go home and watch TV. There's a danger in that because if we're not driven by the right heart which is, and the right motive, which is to see people grow in Christ-likeness, we're, we're not accomplishing the task, even if we're accomplishing the task, if you follow. Because the task is not the task. The task is people's growth. And, and we'll see how that is accomplished. But it necessitates that we have the right character. It begins by humility. In, in classical Greek, humility was actually a derogatory term. It meant servility, humiliation, a weakness. The, the humble person was the person who had nothing to boast in. Nothing that anybody would find attractive. They were, they were the ones that were the kind of the, the class reject. The loser, we would call them. So, humility is like, it's, it's, the humble person is the loser. 
And the humble Christian doesn't care what other people think. They just want to serve. They just want to love. They don't live for themselves and their own exaltation in the, in the applause of man. We need to be humble. Also, with, we need to have patience. This has to do with bearing with one another's weaknesses. I, I think a better translation is often translated in some Bibles, long-suffering. Long-suffering. To bear with the annoyances of other people or the faults, the frailties, the sin of other people. The patient person is the one that doesn't quickly blaze up in anger when things don't go their way. But they endure challenges. They embrace the challenge. Bear with one another in love and be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Uh, I'm, in, I'm really encouraged. This is, this is uh, something I see in my own household, particularly amongst my kids. Um, my kids happen to be super sensitive to any sort of disagreement that Julie and I have. Um, have you, if you know Julie and I, you know that we tend to disagree on a lot of things. We have very different ways of thinking. And even just this week, we were having a disagreement, not a heated one at all, actually, just talking things out. And our two-year-old walked into our bedroom and rebuked one of us and, and said uh, with a little sing-song, if you feel so mad that you want to roar, take a deep breath and count to four. And uh, we embraced that. We, neither one of us actually angry or wanted to roar, but nevertheless, it, it showed his eagerness. He just detected a little bit of tension maybe in the fact that we disagreed with one another and stop it. And all of his brothers are the same way. And, and this is how all of us should be in the church. And so when there, there's going to be disagreements, we're human, right? We, we all are uh, informed by different things. We have different preferences, different desires, and, and, and uh, different reasons for why we do what we do. And we're not omniscient. We're not omnipotent like God. We're dependent upon one another. There's going to be conflict, but we have to be eager to maintain unity. And so when there is disagreement, instead of fueling disagreement by taking sides or yelling and screaming, raising our voices, instead we need to encourage and pursue a bond of peace. Instead of fueling disagreement, we need to quench disagreement or help it, clarify it. And all of, really all these qualities can be summed up in the word selfishness. Don't be selfish. Don't think of yourself, Christian. If Christians are patient with the Trinity in their redemptive plans, then from the very beginning, the focus cannot be upon themselves. It needs to be on others. And so having reminded the church of the, the need for proper character in their calling to do ministry together, Paul provides the pattern for ministry. This is what, sorry, the paradigm for ministry which is really a pattern. This is, this is the standard that we're supposed to follow. And Paul's simple point here is, since the Trinity is one, since the Trinity is unified, the church needs to be unified. That's really the essence of it. Follow the unity in the church. Work together. Just as the three persons in one are God, three persons in one God, notice actually that each are mentioned. Likewise, even though there's multiple persons in the church, it's one body. 
And the point being that the church should be unified just as God is unified. The church needs to pursue the Trinity pursued in the work of redemption. So that's the paradigm for ministry. We saw the character for ministry. Then Paul refers to the plan for ministry. What is the plan for our calling? What is ministry supposed to look like? Well, he explains in verse 7 and then also in verses 11 through 13. Christ gave us grace to each one according to the measure of his gift. Then he says in verse 11, he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ. And I'm just going to quickly work through this. So just stare at your Bibles and I'm just going to run through the logic. Verse 7 is the main verse. Grace has been given, given to each of us. And then in verse 8, Paul presents some biblical support for his claim. In verses 9 and 10, they're just a parenthetical statement explaining verse, we've all been given grace. Then verse 11 provides examples of grace's gifts that each believer has received. And he, he just mentions apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. And then notice that he specifically notes what the purpose of each of those gifts or gifted men is. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body. God gives those gifts, God gives those gifted men for that purpose. Not so that they could have a job, not so that people would admire them or write books about them, not so that they could win elections. Or There's so many ways that this could be abused, right? The purpose of those gifts is for the building up of the body. But He gives every saint a grace gift. And every saint is given that gift not to show their own importance, but to serve the rest of the body. And verse 13 explains what the fully built up body would look like. It would not be immature, but mature. The body, it's just like our bodies mature. The body of Christ is to grow up, be nourished and come to maturity. Just as, as it's the job of parents to help their children grow up into maturity by feeding them and instructing them and training them. Likewise, it's the job of the body to train one another up so the whole church comes to maturity. And I want you to notice two things here. How this is accomplished. Actually, before I even point that out, look at verse 15 and 16. These are key verses on how this is accomplished. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped. When each part is working, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So these are two things I want to point out. First of all, ministry is primarily accomplished. We accomplish our calling primarily through speaking the truth in love. And then, it's also accomplished when each part does its share so that it's built up in love. Let's consider what it means to speak the truth in love. Notice that even though Paul mentions specific roles in verse 11, the work of ministry isn't about roles. 
It's not about tasks. It's not about doing things. Every person has a role. Everybody has a part to play in the body of Christ. And, and we, the church needs infrastructure, right? We, we, we need people to hand out bulletins, to print bulletins, to play music, to sing, to do sound, to work in the nursery. We need all of those things. And I, I actually thought about just listing everything, but basically anything that's going on in the church, any task that anybody has, we need more. Any role that we are fine with. Uh, there are, this church just has tons of needs. But that's, again, I also don't list all those things because it's really not the point. Ministry really isn't about doing things despite our business, institution-loving cult, Christian culture. Ministry really is about speaking the truth in love. The point is not the role that a person has, but the end goal, right? We saw that. He gave prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, for the building up of the body of Christ, right? He calls us to speak the truth in love for the building up of the body of Christ. Not, it's not about the role, it's about the goal. And notice that the end goal is everyone's Christ-likeness. And it, that's not going to be achieved primarily through tasks. The tasks are necessary, right? Your, your children aren't going to grow up very healthy if you never change their diapers. You need to do tasks. But they grow primarily through sleep and food. You speak to them in love. Tasks are necessary, but that's not the, the key. And likewise, Christ-likeness is not primarily going to be accomplished through Christian education. Whether it's Christian colleges, schools, or seminaries. It's not primarily going to be accomplished through rocking youth programs or slick advertising or just world-class music worship teams. Effective ministry is primarily the result of when, like the Trinity, each member speaks the truth in love to other members so that they would grow. You have to think of truth is like an arrow. It's sharp. It's pointed. And, uh, but if you were just to, to pick up an arrow and throw it at a person, you're not going to hurt them. You just annoy them. Um, you might chase them off. They might, you might get their attention. But when that arrow is fitted into a 50-pound um, pressure, bowstring behind it, and it's shot, then it has the power to pierce into the heart, which is what Christians are aiming at. So that bow and that, that bowstring, it's like love. Arrows are meant to go with bows. Can, can they be effective? Yeah, I suppose if you picked up an arrow and you know, stabbed somebody, you can accomplish your purpose. But not really the design, right? Truth, sometimes truth, just God will use it, right? But it's designed to be, to, to be projected through love. They're meant to go together. And Jesus, I think, is a perfect example for this. I mean, just think about how Jesus ministered to people. You think, okay, well, he did miracles. Yes, but what was the purpose of those miracles? They were signs to point to his words, to get people's attention, to, to demonstrate that he's the Christ. It was to wake them up to hear the truth. They were a means to an end. So aside from the miracles, what else did Jesus do? In love. The apostles did the same thing. They didn't build schools. They didn't, they, as far as I know, uh, create any worship teams. I mean, in the traditional understanding of that. 
Lots of worshipers. Really simple. Speak the truth in love. That's how the body of Christ is built up. We need to get away from our institutionalized way of thinking. We need to do all that. We need all those parts of an infrastructure to, for a church to function. It's true. But that's, that the power is in speaking the truth in love for other people. That's how the body grows. And so, um, don't think that you need to be in a designated teaching role to speak the truth in love. Uh, you can do this just by calling somebody up on the phone, even in the midst of this crisis. Talk to a person, or on, on a Zoom call, or go on a walk with people. You can, you can do it through emails, or chatting over, maybe, not, you know, whatever works. But you can speak the truth, and you can love a person as long as you're able to communicate. And we can all speak. And if you're a believer, you can love biblically. There's nothing preventing you from doing the work of ministry right now, regardless of all the restrictions that are put on us because of COVID-19. And the biblical plan for ministry laid out in these verses that each part is to do its share and each part is to do that by speaking the truth in love. So, what is God's expectation for you? You personally. What is God's expectation of you? Well, you need to know the truth. Because you don't know the truth, you can't speak the truth. Which means you need to really grow in your knowledge of God. Maybe something that, that, that keeps you back from speaking the truth is you don't feel like you know enough. There is lots of opportunities. You, there's tons of lectures you can get on the internet. You can read books. Going to church services helps. Sunday school there's tons of resources. If you want ideas of other resources, call up another member of Body of Christ, talk to me. Love to help you out. You're probably already aware of resources available to you. Take advantage of them. If you feel like you're, you're not confident in the truth, do your part to become confident in the truth. Secondly, you need to love. And we saw last week, because God's poured out His Spirit into our hearts, we can love. We love because He first loved us. So we need to love. Thirdly, we need to pursue other spiritual growth. Again, it's not just about our own individual growth. We need to prioritize every other member's of the body of Christ's growth as much as we do our own. And we might not have as much control over their growth or responsibility in the sense that we do for ourselves, but we need to care about it. And so even if even if we can't speak to them, we can still pray for them. And I, I would just by attending a community group or discipleship group. And when you go to those groups, be purposeful, not just to talk with one another, but to be purposeful to really get to know one another so that you can know what a person's needs are. What are their fears? What are they encouraged by? What are, what are, how are they built up? What are their strengths that you could tap into for your own benefit? What are their weaknesses? Get to know... Take responsibility to think, I have a role to play in helping this person grow and try to discern what is that role. How can I help my brother or my sister? So make your aim to get to know others so you can figure out how to help them. And then pray for them. Find ways to serve them. Encourage them. And, and the reality is, you know, grace and truth, we're a pretty small church. But insignificant on the world scale. But we don't need more infrastructure 
Frankly, we don't even need more bodies. We don't need, primarily, we don't need more money, really. If, if we're called to do, all we really need to do is speak the truth and love to one another. But we all need to be doing it. It's a part all of us need to play. And we can be doing that right now, um, even amidst this crisis. And so, let's pray to that end, that we would participate with the Trinity in the work that they've already begun for the sake of the growth of the body of Christ. Heavenly Father, we do just want to improve. We want to be more loving. We want to be more selfless. We want to be more vigilant to do our part uh, towards one another, but also in evangelism so that people might be brought into the body of Christ. Lord, we, we, we don't want to be distracted. And so I pray that you would stir us up, inflame our hearts to, to love truth so that we'd speak the truth and inflame our hearts to love one another and, and expose what areas of selfishness are inhibiting us from loving one another as we should so that we would be the church that you've called us to be. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.